Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, then turn to them to Luke chapter 18, which is on page 1490 of your Reformation Study Bible. If you do not have a Reformation Study Bible, let me remind you, as I've been doing each week, that you can get one in the back of the Information Center. You can order them online. You can get them on your phone. You can put them on your iPad. I don't freak out when I see you looking at your phone. I assume that you're reading along with us in the text. And that's the idea, okay? We want to physically, tangibly put God's Word in your hands, and we want you to use it. So get one of those after the service if you don't have one. But if you do, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 18 as we continue today with a series of messages that we're calling God's Word and Prayer, and in which we're simply coming to God and saying, okay, God, what does your Word have to say about this fundamental basic practice of following Jesus, hear that, that we know of as prayer and here, Lord, is why we're asking this question. We're asking this question because we want to live it. We want you to instruct us so that by the power of your Spirit, we can begin to live out that instruction, and we can begin to communicate with you effectively, and as a result, we can come to actually know you far better than we do. And we can come also to live the kind of lives that we were made to live, the kind of God-glorifying lives that at least in part are consistent with a lifestyle of prayer. So, Lord, what does your word have to say about this topic of prayer? Because we want to live it out. That's the idea. And so far, we've learned a lot about prayer from God's word. We've learned, for example, that we are to pray. When Jesus talks about prayer, he doesn't say, and if you pray. He says, and when you pray. And there's a big difference between if and when. Huge. We talked about that. We learned a little bit about where to pray. You know, we heard that Paul said, look, you are to pray without ceasing. So it's an anytime, anyplace, anywhere kind of a deal. But Jesus also instructed us that there need to be those times in our lives, regularly, regularly scheduled times in our lives, where we separate ourselves from everything and everyone. No cell phones, no people, no distractions. And it's just us and God. So we talked about that too. We learned a little bit about how to pray, and specifically what we learned is that our prayers need to be sincere. They need not to be prayed in order to kind of impress anyone who might be listening or who might be around, and they also need to not be full of all kinds of things and phrases that actually mean nothing. Dear God, thank you for this day. Do you mean that? No, it's just something I say, Lord. Can we continue? Get rid of that or pray it sincerely. And then Jesus came to us and he taught us about what to pray having stolen half our vocabulary when it comes to him in terms of meaningless phrases, he says, all right, now if you're wondering what to say when you're alone with me, say this, our Father, stop, that's a topic, talk to me about that. In heaven, okay, well, hang on a second, that's a hook, hang some real thoughts and words on that. Hallowed be thy name, you get the idea? He gives to us the Lord's Prayer, not as a prayer that we're to recite every time that we get together and worship, though again, for the record... I'm way cool with that. It's just not the intended use of the prayer. He gave it to us as a series of topics given in a very particular order that is to be respected and about which we're to converse with the Lord our God. And then last time we got together and talked about prayer, Jesus, by means of a parable, came to us and he said, okay, now I want to tell you about the kind of attitude that you are to bring with you when you pray. And it's an attitude of expectancy. It is an attitude that says, my heavenly Father hears my prayers, and He responds to them by giving me that which is good. And we also talked about the fact that that which is good is not always that which we ask for, is it? Our Lord reserves the right to answer the prayer that we should have prayed, and in His greater wisdom, 
He knows exactly what that prayer is. But come expecting something from the Lord. So that's where we left off. And this morning, we're going to pick it up with another parable in which he's going to come to us, and by means of the story, he's going to say, okay, here's the thing. In addition to all that we've talked about, you're to persevere in prayer. That is to say, you are to continue to pray and to pray and to pray and to have the kind of faith that prays, even when it seems to you like God is not listening to your prayers, no matter how many you shoot up. And even when it looks like, at least from your perspective, the deliverance that you continue to ask Him for is not coming. And I want to just pause and kind of just openly acknowledge that that is how a lot of folks here today feel. If you are in the construction industry, do I need to say more or can we just jump into the story? Seriously. If you're in the real estate business and all my family in Miami is in the real estate business, this is a message for you. If you're in business, period, and this economy is swallowing you up, or maybe it's already swallowed you up, you're right on with me. If your house is in foreclosure, or it looks like that's where it's going, I'm speaking your language right now. If your marriage stinks, if your kids or one of them is sort of like off the grid, if your health is no good, or the health of somebody that you love is very tenuous right now, you're familiar with praying and praying and praying and praying, and sometimes with feeling like, I don't know if anybody's listening to this, and I honestly, I'm not quite so sure that I believe anymore that deliverance is going to come. If that's you, this is a story for you. And if it's not you, well, tuck it away because it will be. It's a story for all of us. So Luke says this in Luke chapter 18, it says, and he meaning Jesus told to them, these followers of Jesus who were committed not just to knowing the words of Christ, but also to living the words of Christ. People, I hope, like us. Says Jesus told to them a parable, but to what end? What is the expressly stated purpose of the parable? Because Luke tells us before he gives us the story, here it is, to the effect that they ought, how often? Always. To pray and not to quit because that's the temptation. That's the struggle. I mean, at some point you pray and you pray and you pray, you know, and it seems like God's not listening and it looks like deliverance isn't coming and you just want to go, ah, forget it. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to give up, not to quit, not to lose heart, even when it seems like no one's listening and it looks like deliverance is not coming, and then here comes the story. He said this, in a certain city there was a judge, but what kind of a judge? Because the details matter. It's very, very important. He's a judge, Jesus describes him, who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, you got to stop there for a minute and come to understand this guy. Let's look at him for a second, because if we don't understand him, we're going to miss the story. He is a judge, so by definition, then, he's a man of authority. He's a man with power. He's a decision maker, specifically. And as we're going to see in a second, when we meet the second character in this story, he is the decision maker in whose hands that second character's fate is entirely, and that is very very scary if you're her. Why? Because he doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man. That is to say, there's absolutely no accountability in his life, at least from his perspective. He lives as though there's no God 
and there's nobody that he needs to please. You get the idea? No fear of God. He's not worried that someday he's going to stand before the throne of God and God is going to hold him accountable for the way that he lives and for the way that he rules as a judge. He's not worried about that. There's no respect of man. So he's not worried that Bill O'Reilly and some reporter is going to show up at his door and do an expose on how corrupt he is or he's going to be subjected to some kind of you know, judicial ethics committee review. He's not worried about re-election or any of those kinds of things. The only person that he is concerned about is himself. He has no motivation to serve anyone but himself. Watch the judge. Luke says Jesus told them, these followers of Jesus, who were committed not merely to knowing his words but to living them, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not quit. Don't lose heart, he's saying. Even when it seems like God is not listening and it looks like deliverance is not coming. And so here's the story. He says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That's character number one. We've seen him and now he's going to give us character number two. He says, and there was, and then here she is, a widow that's huge in that city. Now, we've got to look at her too. You've got to understand some things about widow in the cultures, in the culture of Jesus to understand and fully appreciate what he's saying. If you were a woman and your husband died in the days of Christ, you inherited, are you ready? Absolutely nothing. You went from living high on the hog, maybe, depending upon how your husband did, or at least making it, right? Having a husband to provide for you, to having absolutely not a thing in the world. And you essentially belonged, when that occurred, to your husband's family. See, the way that dowries worked then was a little different than the way that we look at dowries today or even in recent history. The way that it worked back then is that if you wanted your son to marry somebody else's daughter, your family kind of negotiated an agreement with that other family, and then you, the father of the son, would gather up the agreed-upon sum, if you will, the dowry, and you would pay the dowry to the bride's father. And you would, in a sense, compensate the bride's family for the loss of their daughter, and you're purchasing her for your son. And everything worked out just fine until or unless your son died and left her as a widow, completely destitute. But at that point, she's yours. You get the idea? Because you purchased her. She's like the family car. And you can sell the family car. And you could sell a widow, too. And oftentimes they'd go back to her family, to her own mom and dad if they were still alive, and that wasn't unusual because people married so young in those days, it was not unusual for widows to be very young. And they would offer, if you will, to sell her back to her family. The problem is that the price was the price of the full dowry, and mom and dad had gone on a worldwide cruise. You know, it was unusual for these people to still have that kind of money. So it was unusual for them to be able to afford to purchase her back, and so she could then just be sold to any perfect stranger. Jesus is calling out of his culture a picture of the most vulnerable kind of person, and for our purposes in this story, a picture of a person who has absolutely nothing to offer to this judge who lives with no accountability and who lives to serve no one but himself. You follow? It says, Jesus told them, these followers of Jesus who are committed not merely to knowing the words of Christ, but to living them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to quit. 
pray and not lose heart. Even when it seems like God is not listening and it looks like the deliverance that you're desperately crying out for is not going to come. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was also a widow, the very picture of vulnerability in that city, and don't miss this, who kept coming to this unjust judge. Day after day, week after week, who knows, maybe month after month, and saying what to him? She's saying, give me justice against my adversary. So she desperately needs justice. But she needs it from this guy who is fundamentally unjust. So I hope that you can see what Jesus has done with this story because what he's done with this story is he has set it up in such a way as to cause everybody who hears and understands what's happening inside of it to look at this woman and to want to quit, you know? Just you lose heart. You want to pull her aside because you feel for her and you want to give her a hug because you know her case is hopeless. And you want to say to her, listen, love you, but you're investing a lot of time trying to get something out of this guy that you're never going to get. Give it up. Quit. There is no sense in bringing your prayers for relief to a judge like this. But she doesn't give up. And look what happens. Jesus says, and there was a widow in that city, the very picture of vulnerability, who kept coming to this unjust judge day after day, week after week, month after month, and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And then Jesus adds to the story and he says, and for a while, he, this unjust judge, refused, which is exactly what you would expect. She has nothing to offer him. And every time he refused... How do you think she felt? Did she feel like it was more likely that the next time she went, he would answer? Or do you think that maybe she felt like it was less likely that the next time she went that he would answer? How do you feel? seems to me that every time she went, she left with less hope and less hope and less hope. And less hope. And then, of course, her friends would come over and give her a hug, you know, because they're feeling it for her and say, listen, you know, I love you, but you just need to quit. I mean, this is, this is getting a little ridiculous. Give it up. There's no use bringing your prayers for relief to a judge like this. For a while, this unjust judge refused, Jesus says. It's verse 7, or verse 4, rather. But afterward, and here's the really shocking part, when you study parables, look for that which is shocking. It's the key. It says, but afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, so he knows himself, yet because this widow keeps on persevering, she keeps on bothering me, I'm going to do the right thing anyway, I will give her justice to get her off my back so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then, having finished the story, Luke tells us that the Lord, in a sense, stops and points at that unjust judge, and he says to everybody who's committed, not just to knowing his word, but also to living it, he says, hear what the unrighteous judge says to this widow who by all accounts and everyone's agreement should have quit. Love you, but I mean, you know, come on. I mean, this is ridiculous. Because guys, if you missed it, in the end, he granted her request. 
And then he says, and will not God give justice to who? To his elect, to his people, to those that he has called out of humanity, those whom he sent his son to suffer and die for, those whom he came to by means of the Holy Spirit and literally raised from the dead spiritually and gave the very faith by which they embrace him. My goodness, he says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And you say, okay, well, wait a minute. Is, is what Jesus is saying here is that God is sort of like the unjust judge? And I think the answer to that is yes and no. He is like the unjust judge and that whether we realize it or not, he is the ultimate decision maker. He is the person in each one of our stories who decides and in whose hands our fate rests entirely. He is our only hope, is the idea. But, but he's also very much unlike the unjust judge in that he's not unjust, and he's not unaccountable, believe it or not. He is accountable to his own perfect character, and that should give us a lot of hope, and it should inspire from us the ability to persevere in prayer even when it looks like my goodness, you know, is, he, is this getting through? I mean, is deliverance ever coming? Am I wasting my time? Our hope is in the perfect character of God who is altogether pure, who is altogether righteous, and who is himself the very definition of that which is just and who has promised to deliver. And so he's very much like and unlike the unjust judge. And so you say, well, all right, but... What about us? I mean, is Jesus saying that we're like the widow again? Yes and no. I mean, we are like the widow in that notwithstanding our resources and wealth and connections and life insurance and health insurance and all of the things that we wisely do to insulate ourselves from vulnerability in this life, we are altogether vulnerable. And the longer you live, the more you realize that. And we try to deny that, and we try to suppress the thought of that, and we don't want to even go there in our hearts and minds because it kind of makes us all sort of anxious, if you will. But it is true that we are completely vulnerable creatures. And in that sense, yeah, we're very much like the widow, but we're also very much unlike the widow in that we're the elect of God. He doesn't call us widows. He calls us His elect. And the Bible has a lot to say about the elect of God, all of which ought to make you really happy. I want to read you one statement. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, Paul is writing to the elect about some of the benefits of being elect, our special status. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, just pause for a moment. Just kind of hang on with that for a second. If God is for us, who can be against us? I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend named Trip Harrison. In fact, if you're into art, um, Trip Harrison is a pretty famous artist today. The irony being, I don't think he drew so much as a stick figure until he went to college. But I see his art all over the place. I was at Bimini Boatyard, and there's his artwork, and it's everywhere. But he was a big kid. He had stayed back in the fifth grade, and that's where we met. We became really good friends. He hit puberty when he was three. I hit puberty when I was 33. And um, so some of you have watched me grow up. But, um, 
But I mean, he was big and strong. He was a boxer. He was this and, you know, and I was small and short and, and I had a big mouth and he had big biceps. And so together we made a good team. And it was sort of like, if Trip is for me, you know, I mean, who cares who's against me? Get the idea? It's the argument Paul's making. There is a confidence that we ought to live with, knowing that God is for us, and not just occasionally, all of the time. If God is for us, who can be against us, he's saying. He's saying, go go home, make a list, write down everything against you, and then across the top write, God is for me. That's not a little thing. He says, he who did not spare his own son, now listen to this argument, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us how many things? Everything. All things. He's like, he didn't withhold Jesus from you. So what do you think he will withhold? Can you put anything down? I don't think so. He continues, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God, and what is He doing? Who indeed is interceding for us right now. The Lord Christ is praying to the Heavenly Father, and guess who He's praying for? because it ought to make you feel better. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he's not saying that you and I will not face any of those things. Look at his life. Look at the life of any of the apostles. Look at the life of Christ himself. If anybody comes along and says, hey, you know, if you just have faith in Jesus, it's going to clear things up for you. That's ridiculous, not true. But what he's saying is that nothing that you encounter in this life can separate you from the eternal love of Christ. As it is written, Paul says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and he was killed. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, and he was slaughtered. And yet he goes on, he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus gets to the end of his story and he says to everybody who is interested and committed, not just to knowing his words, but also to living them, he points at this unjust judge and he says, did you hear what he said? Hear what the unrighteous judge says to this woman who by everyone's account should have quit praying, should have given up. Because if you missed it, he grants her request And then he says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night in prayer? Will he delay long over them? Now he answers his own question. He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And then he concludes the whole lesson with this statement. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith 
on earth. End of lesson. So what does that mean? He's taking this whole topic and turning it on its head. He's saying, guys, the question is not whether God in the end will faithfully answer all of your prayers and faithfully satisfy all of your longings for deliverance and justice. It's not the question. He's promised to do it. He's accountable to his own character. It's as good as done. He says, the question is whether when I return finally and definitively to bring the justice of heaven to earth and to answer every prayer of all of my elect, will I find in you the kind of faith that has persevered in prayer, even through those seasons of life when, you know, I mean, from our itty-bitty perspective, it just kind of seemed like God isn't listening and, and it looked like deliverance would never come, or will he find instead that we have quit? That we've quit praying and that we've quit living the kind of life that is consistent with ongoing, vibrant, meaningful communication with the Lord our God. What kind of life is that? Well, at least in part, it's a life that shows compassion toward widows, toward the vulnerable in our society. So I want to wrap it up today with a question. You ready? You and the Lord. Here it is. If he returned right now, I know there's been some talk about that in recent weeks, but if he returned right now, what would he find in you? Have you quit praying? Have you quit hoping? Have you quit living? Or are you hanging on and clinging to the eternal promises of an eternal God who has eternal purposes for all of your eternity that He's working out even through the difficult things in your life now? Jesus comes to us and He says, Hey, pray and do not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our Lord and our Savior for God who has been made flesh, who entered into humanity in a means that we would understand, who came as the eternal God to suffer our internal debt, who came as a man to suffer for men and to speak to our hearts in ways that we understand. And I pray, God, by Your Spirit, You would strengthen through Your Word our faith in Him the one from whom we can never be separated, no matter what occurs to us in this life, no matter what you call us to endure. And I pray, God, that you would inspire a persevering faith and a persevering prayer life and active life. That, Lord, when you do return, you find in us the kind of faith that trusts, that hopes and that praise, even during the dry seasons of life. We pray these things for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.